This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Obstacle Anatomy. Dracula's Castle. Floppy Civilization. And the Oak Island Holy Grail. So, Ken, the auspicious moment is upon us. I've been talking about Feng Shui 2 for nearly a year now. The Kickstarter date approacheth. Yes, we'll be locking and loading on Wednesday, September 17th at 8 p.m. With the usual one-month window? Yeah, the campaign will run until Friday, October 17th. So, whether you're an early adopter or a last-minute roll under the descending blast door as the bullets fly type, the fine team at Atlas Games is ready for you. And for role players inexplicably tuning into our show for the first time, remind us what Feng Shui is. It's the classic action movie role-playing game inspired by the giddy, ultraviolet heights of Hong Kong cinema, now making a golden comeback in a revved-up and super-tuned all-new edition. And to mix up various action genres, from gravity-defying martial arts to blood-spattered gunplay, it features the key war. Yes, the players fight across key time periods to control key sites, of geomantic power and thus history itself. And as you've been saying, you've gone back to this much-beloved game that changed the way a lot of people played and made it, would you dare say, fasterer and furiouser? I am confident in that statement. Who do you want to play, Ken? A supreme martial artist, a wily sorcerer, an icy cool killer on a bullet-strewn path to redemption? I am nothing if not an everyday hero. Well, look out, because there's a cyborg gorilla headed this way. People will be glad to finally jump on this. You've been whipping them into a froth on the social media. I've never had so much excitement around a project in development before, so it's not about whether we'll do it, but how much we and the backers together can use the funding process to awesome it up. So the question is, how amazing a realization of feng shui can you make it? And the answer starts on Wednesday, September 17th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. When the gun goes off, rush to Kickstarter and search for Feng Shui 2, Action Movie Roleplaying, or Robin D. Laws. The clatter of dice, the shag carpeting on the floor... The crunch of Doritos tell us that once more we are in the friendly confines of the gaming hut. But no! Before us in the gaming hut, there is an obstacle and not merely an unfolded copy of Frampton Comes Alive, as we used to call a DM screen back in the day, but an actual obstacle. So, so if, we, if we win the any, do we get to, like, upgrade to at least, like, a 90s gaming hut, you know, with some plaid on the... When you upgrade to a younger host, you may upgrade to a 90s gaming hut, my friend. Uh, okay, well, we wouldn't want to do that. All right. Stop making obstacles before I say obstacle. Uh, and it is a it is a inherent obstacle, a narrative obstacle. Robin, what's around and behind that obstacle? Well, let us start off with the uh, ulterior motive behind the obstacle. Interestingly enough, I, for the first time in my uh, long and storied and fabled career, have been hired by a convention to write a little publication for them, and that is the uh, Kraken Convention in Germany, which is uh, a cool sort of grown-up resort-style hangout, to relax, have a good time, and uh, gather to play games events, and most of the games are in English. But uh, Fabi Kuschler of the Kraken has engaged me to write the convention fundraiser book uh, this year, and so that is called Sharper Adventures in Hero Quest Glorantha. And the purpose of this uh, little chapbook, uh, which will be available to the general public after the 
convention, which is the weekend of the 22nd, is the idea that not just in Glorantha, but in Glorantha in particular, it is sometimes difficult to create really compelling adventures because the world itself is so rich and full of moment and story and narrative events that it's sometimes difficult to engage with that in a way that just isn't simply going on a cook's tour of the world and encountering people and things and situations, but not really fully engaging with them. And so the travelogue problem, right? And so uh, one of the major things that you want to do, if you get a want to get away from the travelogue into the active adventure where the characters have agency is to start to break down the building blocks of procedural adventure narrative. And those building blocks are of course, the obstacle. So the chapbook goes into a certain amount of degree, sort of breaking down what all the various elements that you want to look at. And I thought for the purpose of this segment that we would look at the obstacle. As you suggested, the obstacle is the main currency of procedural storytelling. And that's something that confronts the heroes, something the heroes must test themselves against. Not necessarily something that they must overcome or the adventure stops, because in fact, that is a bottleneck, that's trouble, but something Mm -hmm. that tests the heroes and the hero either succeeds and moves on in a new direction and then is led or uh, even better, uh, impels themselves towards the next obstacle, uh, or conversely, if they fail, failure then propels them toward another obstacle, which they must overcome from their now worse situation. Uh, so, Ken, uh, is that how you basically see obstacles? Do we have any uh, semantic quibbles before we move up forward? No, I think that that's, that's a perfectly sound uh, way to, uh, to put it. I might have used the word challenge instead of obstacle, just because I think that you can have things that present that sort of narrative obstacle while not being presented as obstacles in play. They're not necessarily a slavering otyug, neo or regular, but they might be, you know, an attractive stranger with a business proposition. And you say, well, you know, what could be a problem with hanging out with attractive strangers with money? That sounds like an ideal Saturday, but it turns out that it's a real choice to do that or not do that. And then those same sorts of things flow from that. So I would, I would maybe have not used the word obstacle, but certainly obstacle um, uh, is a perfectly adequate uh, way to do it. And maybe if you start thinking of attractive strangers as obstacles instead of as possible rungs on the ladder, then that might uh, improve your, your treatment of them or not. Yeah, or, or improve the thought on the part of both the adventure writer slash GM and the players that everything you encounter is something to be dealt with rather mm-hmm. than just something to be passively uh, engaged with. Um, you could also use the word problem, uh, because in fact, uh, all procedural storytelling is about problem solving. Uh, and, uh, again, if you look at, I've been attract, approached by a handsome stranger, what problem does that entail? That also makes your storytelling uh, more active and more protagonist engaged. Uh, you could also observe, though, that, uh, dramatic storytelling is based on problems that you're trying to convince your mother to give you the approval you need is also a problem, as uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman once really interestingly explained in an interview that all acting should be about problem solving. So let's, for the sake of, you know, and there are other synonyms you could use, but let's continue to call it an obstacle. Obstacle is fun. And so the 
article breaks down as you're creating an obstacle as a GM slash scenario writer, the obstacle into four components. And the first one is the dilemma. And that encourages you to look at what exactly the problem is that, that is implied by the obstacle. So that is the first step toward taking something that you encounter in the world, and particularly in a, maybe in a sandboxy world, and upping the stakes so that we see it as something that the heroes somehow have to come to terms with or grapple with. So uh, the dilemma could be there is a big rock in your way preventing you from moving deeper into the tunnels, or you meet a handsome stranger who seems somewhat suspicious. So right there is an example of heightening an encounter into a dilemma. So handsome stranger, you just met a handsome stranger, players might or might not decide to engage with that, but as soon as you say, and he's behaving somewhat suspiciously, or whatever it is, all right, I'm sure, Ken, you could come up with, you know, three or four different things that would turn handsome stranger from a thing in the world into a dilemma. Yeah, I mean, it, a lot of it, it you're going to wind up feeding into whatever the specific kinds of story events are. So if you're running into a handsome stranger in in Deadlands, say, you say you, you see a handsome stranger and he has a charm bracelet with spades, clubs, hearts, and diamonds on his arm. And so, first of all, he's a handsome stranger, but he's wearing male jewelry, which is unusual, and they've got the suits of the cards, so... Maybe he's a magician, maybe he's got anti-magic. There's something not even necessarily suspicious, but curious and and, and to be investigated about the guy. Whereas conversely, in, in Nice Black Agents, you had a handsome stranger who doesn't cast a shadow. And then it's like, ha-ha, adventure possibly afoot, or maybe, I don't know. So, so there, each, each different setting and each ideally different story is going to have its own set of signals. And once you've learned the specific sorts of signals that you're... Uh, that your game is sending, or, or your campaign sends, you should have a repertoire of them. And so some handsome strangers don't cast shadows, and some handsome strangers uh, with a free uh, tradecraft, you can tell that they're dry-cleaning themselves as they walk so that no one can follow them. You know, with another handsome stranger, you can tell, is uh, reflexively, uh, you, you know, standing in an aikijutsu rest pose. Another handsome stranger is, um, you know... Uh, the spitting image of someone that you saw in a 400-year-old record book. You know, there's all kinds of different ways you can signal that the handsome stranger means one or another kinds of things. Right. So that's element A. Element B is then choices. So if an obstacle is going to be active, if it's going to be something that the players can engage with, you want to ask yourself, what choices do they get to make around this obstacle. And it's not that every single obstacle needs to have choices attached to it, but almost all of them should. So for example, if you've got a rock in front of the tunnel, you could say, oh, well, it requires a strength check to move the, the rock. But that's not super engaging because the players, well, I guess I use a strength check to move the rock. I use, make a strength check. Okay, great. There you go. But if it's, do I use a strength check or do I use this acid vial that I've been given by the prince, which might have, it might indebt me to the prince if I use this, but it'll uh, save Boris's strength so that he's uh, rested up in case there's something on the other end. Once you get to an either or, a trade-off or a question or something where they have to decide what to do, you have a much richer obstacle and one where the decisions that the players make then become 
important. And that's one of the things that adventure writing is very easy to say, but weirdly difficult to do all the time. One of the reasons that's difficult in a published adventure is that the more choices you have in a scene, the more possible branch points you have, meaning that your word count expands and it also becomes more difficult to follow. But your key obstacles, I would argue, you want to make sure as much as possible that you have some sort of choice that allows them to do something. So, for example, if the in Deadlands, the mysterious handsome stranger with the wrist then gets up on a stage and does a medicine show for a while, and the GM just reads off what it is that he does in the medicine show, and then he packs up and leaves before you can interact with him, that presented with you a dilemma, and they gave you no choices. Right. Yeah, and, and I was going to say that the, the choices can either be a choice of action, right, in the sense that the handsome stranger asks you for a favor or asks you if you want to pick a card or whatever, or it can be a choice of tactics. Uh, the Neo-Atyug band begins to spread out uh, across the floor of the uh, room in the dungeon. There are torches in sconces. There is a big billowing tapestry, and there are things you could put in there that provide tactical interest, even if you know because it's an F20 game. The choice of, even if the Neo Atyug says, or the regular Atyug says, uh, stand and fight or give us all your money, you know that because they're players, they're not gonna choose give us all your money, they're gonna choose fight. But making that choice an interesting choice, even above and uh, beyond the, do we fight these Atyugs here or do we pull back into the room behind us, you wanna make there be possible tactics and possible opportunities within the combat as well as within the players uh, you know, arsenal of stuff. Do we use magic? Do we use, you know, longbows? Do we, what, what specific mix of our resources do we spend on these Atyugs? Because we know that they are just one of the obstacles we're going to face in this dungeon. Right. And an F20 game that's doing its job will make sure that there are interesting choices for you to make as soon as you engage with something in combat. It's uh, not always so clearly supportive of obstacles outside of that. But uh, that's the key thing, is make sure that there are, are choices to make and that the choices differ from obstacle to obstacle. Uh, some of them are tactical, some of them are moral, uh, some of them might be emotional, uh, some of them just might be, do I do X or Y, and my decision to uh, you know, go and harvest the plants uh, instead of going and chasing the millipedes, uh, both of those, if they pay off in some way uh, later on, that feels like the choices that the players are making matter. And that's what gets us to element C of any well-turned obstacle, and that is consequences. So what you are doing when you engage with something has to matter in some way, and it has to feel to the players that it matters either immediately or later on. And that's, again, a key part of emotional engagement and a key part of making sure that it's basically did the choices you just make have any relevance? And so, again, when you're dealing with the literal obstacle, the rock in the path of the tunnel, you don't want to set that off as, well, if you don't move the rock, you just don't get to move forward. So the question is, okay, well, if Boris moves the rock with his strength check, we actually move forward, but it takes us more time and Boris might be fatigued for the next little while. If we use the uh, potion that the prince gave us, it'll be faster and Boris will be fresh when we get to the other side, but we'll then owe the prince something. So do we want to take a short-term practical hit now 
versus a political hit later. And so both of those things move forward into later scenes and affect what happens in later scenes. So when you're building an obstacle, look for ways to make sure that it's not just an isolated narrative island floating out there and is only its own thing and doesn't feed into anything else later, but what does this mean about the rest of the story? I think that you can also, you know, sort of blend the consequences with the choices. So, you know, obviously you have choices. Do we expend this resource or that resource that has a knock-on effect? But, A, you generally have that choice in every combat encounter, if not every single encounter. And so I find that it's, you know, you can't necessarily do this every time, which is a shame. But as often as you can, you should think, what are the bad guys doing? What are their, what's their activity? They're not just camped out hoping for a bard today. They are, they, they have other stuff going on. And so the Otyugs might be roasting a halfling. And so you have to choose, well, do we save the halfling at the, at, because he's going to be all the way in the back and we have to take a bunch of Otyug shots to get to him? Or do we let him roast to death while we fight the Otyug? And so even if you're guaranteed that you're going to beat the Otyugs, whether you ch- saved that halfling is going to move on because when you meet the halfling's brother who happens to have, you know, uh, a, a whole bunch of uh, fake acid vials you can use to get out from under the prince, if you didn't save his brother from the Otyug, he's going to say, you know what, screw you people. And, uh, and another thing, I'm going to report your actions to my good friend the prince, you jerk. And so, you know, trouble will ensue because you didn't make one choice. But if you do make, you know, that choice, you've interfered with the bad guy's plans and become a, a, a bigger problem to, to them. Maybe not to the Otyug specifically, but the, the, the word will get down the other way because the Halfling's brother will start saying, these guys are awesome. They saved my brother from the Otyugs. And all the other Otyugs and the Otyugs employers and the Neo-Otyugs, who can only hope to live up to being Otyugs someday, <laughs> will, um, uh, will say, these guys hate Otyugs. We've got to take them down. You know, Ideally, every piece of agenda you can give an obstacle a, a, a bad guy people harder to do that with a rock granted but maybe you can give the guy who put the rock there an agenda you know you move the the rock and as you begin to move it there's a wizard uh a glyph glowing on it and it's like oh my god a wizard put it here well that can't be good uh and so then you have actual consequences and choices to make because something had an agenda interfering with something else's agenda by definition creates story because the guy you interfered with is going to be ticked off at you and the people who, uh, if that guy was a bad guy, which nine, t- nine times out of ten he was, the people who he was messing with will like you, and that also creates consequences. The, the number of, of interesting story consequences that come from doing your job and being liked is remarkably un- underexplored, I think, in gaming, and I always like to make sure that I creep my players out with how many people uh, like and admire them just as much as I do with how many people hate and want them killed. Right, and the great thing about that technique is that it is a way of giving the players feedback to show them the consequences of their actions and show them the positive consequences, which we sometimes forget about because we're too focused on ratcheting up tension. And that then tells them that the choice they made mattered and had a payoff. And sometimes it has a positive payoff and sometimes it has a negative cost. And so the more that you can start thinking in those terms of how does my decision here uh, not only matter, but how do I make sure that the players know that it mattered, the richer and more interesting and engaging all of these little building blocks of your story will be. And that brings us to the final 
element that I've identified as a part of a consequence, and that's rooting interest. And that's just storytelling speak for why do the players slash characters care about this? And if you have constructed all of your other elements uh, sufficiently well, it'll be an easy answer to that question. It'll already be built into A, B, and C. D will just be sort of your reminder where you tick off and go, oh, well, this matters because they need to get past the rock to fight the Neo-Otugs because their uh, career depends on it. And whether they get in greater debt to the prince or not matters to them because they are uh, leery of engaging with this political force, which they know to be trouble, but feel they're being sort of pulled into that. And so if you can find uh, one or two different emotional hooks about why do they care about uh, something, then as simple an obstacle as how they choose to move a rock then really feels uh, rich and, and part of the uh, whole experience. So if you remember, for example, in Star Wars, there's a, the trash compactor scene is cool and fun, but it also matters. We have a rooting interest in their getting out of that trap in order to go on and fulfill their next objective. And so that makes that just sort of physical thing really interesting and resonant and memorable years and years after you see that film. Although admittedly, the reason you have a rooting interest in the trash compactor scene is because you've, A, you care about the characters, and B, because you care about their their, their ongoing, you know, set of adventures. I mean, whether they're, you know, you don't know at the time that they're in the trash compactor that they're planning to blow up the Death Star because you don't know what it is that are on the on the little droids' tapes, you just know, gosh, it'd be a shame if that nice Luke Skywalker got crushed to death and we had to watch these robots do nothing for the rest of the adventure. And so you have the rooting interest that's built into the characters. But one of the things that a rich world can give you, like Lorantha or Earth, is you can have a rooting interest from the get-go because you can recognize, you know, the clan that the other guy's from, or you can recognize the, this, the, the rune that's on the rock. You can recognize, you know, elements of the world and know, oh, my character's from Brazil. The fact that these guys are Paraguayans might mean trouble for us. Or my character's, you know, from the um, uh, Storm Bowl cult. The fact that these Atyugs um, ate a guy from the Storm Bowl cult makes us really hate them. And so that's, you know, uh, going to be a, a, a thing you can put in because the world is rich, as opposed to with a lot of worlds, it's just like you say, oh, and also Dwarf, you know that your cousin was eaten by Atyugs, and the dwarf is like, yeah, sure. It's the, the uncle problem in Call of Cthulhu. You don't really care about your uncle. You care about the ghost in the building, and the reason you care about ghosts is because it's using the lore of the haunted house that we've all absorbed from the world as, as a richness, as, a, as an umami for the, for the adventure. Right, and if you've started off your adventure giving the heroes a clear stake in a broader objective of which this obstacle is just one of several increments, your rooting interest can just be as simple a matter as reminding yourself that the players can see that this gets them closer to their overall goal. Mm -hmm. So you can just say, you know, gets them closer to blowing up the Death Star, gets them closer to getting the uh, chaos creatures off of your lands, whatever it is, that is a simple sort of checklist way of making sure this isn't just another random thing that they've run into and doesn't really mean anything, but that it ties into and pays off the uh, broader storyline, which of course is the whole point of a building block of narrative that you might occasionally have a, an obstacle where, you know, the choice is 
to engage with this or not to engage with it. And the negative consequence, if you do choose to engage with it, is that you waste your time yeah. and something dumb happens or you, you know, you get distracted. And there's certainly all kinds of scenes in sort of group fiction where the one character goes off and gets into trouble and gets in a bar fight on the uh, night when everybody else is planning the event and whether he gets drawn into the bar fight or not is, you know, relates in sort of a secondary way to the overall adventure. But the main thing is don't do that. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't get in bar fights without backup. I think that's, that's our takeaway from this. Right. So that's a very simple uh, structure that you can use when creating your own adventures in any world to make even a game of exploration and meeting people and doing things to take the, uh, move it away some sort of, uh, picaresque tourism into engaging problem-solving procedural storytelling. So just to reiterate, uh, those four elements are A, the dilemma, B, the choices, C, the consequences, and D, the rooting interest. And once we have reiterated, complete with letters, it is time for us to iterate into the next hut. Hey, Ken, have you heard of Shotguns v. Cthulhu, the pulse-pounding collection of action-packed Lovecraftian tales from Stoneskin Press? I have, because I have a story in it, and you edited it. Of course you do, because that was a rhetorical question for marketing purposes. Would you be asking, because Pelgrane Press, Stoneskin's mothership company, has a special deal on Shotguns v. Cthulhu until September 1st? Another rhetorical question, but I'll allow it. Yes, until September 1st, if you go to the Pelgrane Press store and order a hard copy of Shotguns v. Cthulhu with all of its icker-spattered madness, you get not only an immediate ebook download, as is Pelgrane's won't, as is Pelgrane's won't indeed, you also get an immediate ebook download of Schemers. Would that also be a Stoneskin Press anthology edited by you? That's less rhetorical question, but a leading one, but the answer is again, yes. Would this genre-spanning anthology veritably drip with tales of trickery, subversion, and betrayal? It not only would, but does, from such authors as Ekaterina Cedia, Jesse Bullington, and Tobias Bacall. A fine accompaniment, then, to Shotgun's selection of fear, suspense, and bloodshed from writers including Scott Glancy, Dennis Detwiller, and Dave Gross. To get the special ebook Schemer's bonus deal, just go to the Pelgrane Press store and order a print edition of Shotguns v. Cthulhu as you normally would. No coupon code or tricky link required. Will it expire on September 1st, 2014? Just as sure as a Glock-toting Shoggoth is looming up behind you. You're joking, right? I wish I was, Ken. I wish I was. <laughs> The compass rose in the corner, and the carefully gridded space that we stand upon tell us that we've once again entered the well-documented confines of the cartography hut. And this week, Ken, I thought that we would uh, dig a bit further into one of your recent Pelgrane Press blog posts into the mysteries of finding Dracula's castle. And first of all, the reason that you are hunting for Dracula's castle is because you've been working on the Dracula dossier, and for the benefit of listeners who've just started listening to our podcast this very second, what is the <laughs> Dracula dossier? Yeah, because we covered it so extensively in the previous segment. The Dracula dossier is a, a long-form campaign, an improvised campaign, potentially, along the lines of the Armitage Files for 
nice black agents. And the basic goal of the campaign is to find and kill Dracula because the team in 1893 or 1897, rather, did not do it entirely. And the reason it turns out that they did not do it entirely is they were part of a British Secret Service operation that was attempting to recruit Dracula as an asset. And since it was a spy mission, we know from all spy fiction that something went wrong, someone was betrayed, etc., etc., etc. And so Dracula escaped at the end of the novel, uh, the end of the actions of the novel, and has been popping up here and there throughout uh, the history of the British intelligence service since 1894 and is now once more a threat and it is up to you because you have been burned by your agencies and have no larger national agenda to pursue it is up to you to take Dracula down and end his threat forever and to do that it would help to find his castle because you suspect uh, quite rightly that uh, he cares about his castle and might have guys stationed there or perhaps he's even still sleeping there or gathering his native earth from there the larger point being finding his castle becomes very, very helpful in the larger struggle against Dracula. So in order for you to set up these series of obstacles, obstacles. Uh, that the players face as they uh, try to find Dracula's castle and uh, finally stake him as so many others have failed to do before him, uh, you had to face the obstacle of uh, deciding uh, where to put it or uh, which possible places to signal to the GM to uh, choose to put it. So how did you go about that? Well, the, um, the, the fortunate thing, I guess, is that there are about four places that are in Romania that if you say, you know, where's Dracula's castle, you'll get one of those four answers. So we start with that. The other great thing is that people usually try and either find a place that you can derive from the directions in Stoker's manuscript, uh, you can de derive from the descriptions in Stoker's manuscript, which uh, the alert person will note that uh, do not match. It's as though Bram Stoker had never been to Romania. And, uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's because of the cover-up that the Dracula dossier yeah, is the premise that's of. That's the obvious reason. And uh, the other thing that people do is because uh, Vlad Dracula Tepes has become associated with the novels of villain, uh, they look for castles that are associated with Vlad Tepes and that those might be Dracula's castle. Those are going to be the majority of the ones that you find on the ground. If you went to a Romanian tourist office and you said, I want to go to Dracula's castle, you would be shown Vlad Tepes' castles more than likely. Uh, so uh, does the Dracula dossier come down on one side or the other as to whether uh, Tepes and Dracula are one and the same, or does that leave uh, various options open to the uh, GM? The GM may pick which uh, Romanian warlord, if any. Uh, we also have some Hungarian warlords attached is Dracula, um, and you can make that as important or unimportant a part of your game as you want. It's, it's, uh, it's a useful thing to know, but it doesn't immediately drive the game in the way that, say, you know, whether or not the CIA knows about it drives the game. Right, because that's a, a deep backstory, and it might mm -hmm. matter as to whether they find a clue or not, or an incidental thing, but it's not uh, as big a thing as knowing where to go and find him currently and kill him. Right, and who is going to be uh, protecting him or getting in your way or trying to recruit him while you're trying to kill him, those kinds of things. Now, if I was to, to base my hunt on the uh, Todd Browning movie with Bela Lugosi, I would go to Romania and look for stray armadillos, because we all know that Dracula's castle in the movie version is crawling with them, mysteriously haunted by armadillos. Uh, how did you go about... Uh, I assume you did not... Simon did not finance an armadillo hunt in Romania for you, so how did you go about narrowing down the choices? 
there's a great bit in uh, Mick Farron's novels that says Dracula uh, that says vampires just attract armadillos, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so, regardless of where you are, there's going to be armadillos scurrying around in your castle. So, are, are these like vampiric armadillos, or are they just? I think that they're just normal armadillos. I think it's just like you know, um, uh, sloppy kitchen maintenance attracts cockroaches. They're I just think like that's Kristen Stewart. They just got a thing for vampires. They they find themselves paralyzed with um uh, with with thwarted romance about the vampires. Well, I don't know if Kristen Stewart and the va- and the armadillos probably have entirely different agendas. Right. Um, I I don't want to get into. And you're not endorsing Kristen Stewart armadillo slash fiction. No, not at all. Um, you submit that on your own, but give. 10% if you sell it. <laughs> Anyhow, the way that, you know, I started doing it was basically I took those three kinds of, of places you might find Dracula and I looked for as many possible solutions to those problems as I could without caring whether or not they contradicted other ones. And that's, you know, once you don't care about contradiction, you open yourself up to all manner of different possibilities. So I wind up with nine Romanian castle Draculas and two castle Draculas outside Romania just to uh, keep things interesting. So the the sort of the standard literary Dracula castle, for example, is in Borgo Pass because it's a description, it's a location that is actually given in the novel. And sure enough, there's a hotel castle Dracula sitting right there in the middle of the pass, um, which is right near the the skis, the a ski lodge at Piatra Fanatella. But if you go on Google Earth or, or rather Google Maps and you look around using the camera, you note that it's a it's a lovely rolling countryside, it doesn't look at all like the, the Dracula, the Borgo Pass in the novel, and so you have to go farther along to um, uh, the, the very tail end of the pass, and maybe a little past it, to this grainy gorge. And so that's basically a couple of different locations for Dracula's castle within a single location. And that can give you a fun scene where the, the terrified uh, spies show up, they've got their map, they've gone to the Borgo Pass, and then they find that this utterly bucolic uh, tourist trap because uh, in in your in the mainline version of Dra- Dracula dossier is Stoker's novel as uh, well known in that timeline as it is in ours. Yeah, no, it's in like in common with most spy fiction, it pretends to be set in our world, and so uh, Dracula was published by Stoker as and with the encouragement of the Home Office as disinformation to cover up the approach, so that if anyone ever you know, tries to raise a, a, a record in, in Parliament or in some official inquiry that, uh, you know, the Secret Service is hiring vampires, uh, and we have proof that they got a, a, a lawyer to go down to Transylvania and recruit one, people will say, you mean like the novel? You're a, you're a nutter. Go away. And, and so it becomes great uh, disinformation, like how the Air Force spread UFO stories to cover its experimental aircraft. So you could have a scene where everybody shows up, they find this super bucolic tourist trap, and they can either decide to move on to where the thing is, or if they just figure, well, this is too bucolic, this is too beautiful, this is too pretty, they could settle in, and then you have to figure out how to have uh, terrible things happen to them as they wait for terrible things to happen to them. Right, yeah. The uh, the good thing is that anyone that's in Romania is going to be, you know, watched by somebody. So you can always uh, have a meeting with the, uh, the security forces or with uh, Dracula's uh, agents on the ground assuming that those are different people. So do you uh, cover the possibility of having a, a sort of a modern-day Mina Harker character that they have with them who uh, can sort of function as a bait to lure Dracula? If they've been doing their job, they'll be perfectly good bait uh, because they will have been <laughs> pestering Dracula's operations elsewhere. Uh, but yes, they're, uh, in, the, in the game, we also have what we call legacies, who are people who are 
uh, somehow connected to the 1894 uh, network. And as the, so you might have Mina Harker's great granddaughter. You might have the current Lord Godalming. You might have, uh, you know, any number of these guys have got, you know, legacies into the present. And then you can ask yourself the question, are they just a legacy? Did they get made a vampire? And now they're immortal and pretending to be their own descendants. So there's lots of fun that you can have there. If they're mortal descendants, is there something about their blood that is especially delicious to uh, to Dracula? And if you're very lucky, then one of your characters will have survived an attack by Dracula and might be able to Mina themselves all the live long day, assuming that they ingested Dracula's blood, which I think is the way that Mina does it. But there's any number of possible uh, ways to set that up. So speaking of meaningful choices, what are the different choices that... Uh, the GM is presented with in terms of why uh, choosing the Hungarian warlord castle versus this other castle. What are the decisions that I'm going to be making as a GM when I decide which castle is Dracula's? One of the things that you're going to be deciding, because each castle is going to have a different uh, feel to it. I mean, you're, you're going to be wanting to drive your own story as to whether or not you want to have the, the big confrontation in a bunch of ruins off on a Romanian Alp, like um, uh, the obsessed Dutchman Hans Corneel de Roos has found a good Romanian Alp that is backed up by the uh, actual notes that Stoker took. Or are you do, do you want to have it in a, in a tourist trap like Bran Castle or like the Hotel Castle Dracula? Do you want to have it outside Romania and make Romania a big double bluff? And so you can go to Arava Castle in Slovakia, where Nosferatu was filmed, and uh, then you say, well, is there an Orlok, and is Orlok the same as Dracula, or is Orlok a German experiment? I mean, the choice of castle, because it's going to be a choice that is gotten to by the course of the adventure, is going to sort of inform the things that you want put into the adventure, and of course, it being improvisable, the players may wind up, you know, deciding that Castle Dracula is in Kratzyuna, which was built by Radu Vlad Tepesh's brother, and is therefore a really proper site, and is also, you know, a lost and unknown castle, so you're not tied down to uh, the the actual geography as much as you would be if you put it in Castle Bran, which has got, which is owned by the Habsburg family and has museum in it, uh, a furniture museum, as it turns out. Well, you could break it up into stakes pretty easily. Yes, yes, you can. <laughs> Although, then you're really on the hook because so the Habsburgs will frown on that. But, fairly expensive. You know, and it's, and it's so it's so mean to make the Habsburgs frown because they, they barely have a chin at all. <laughs> <laughs> but there's um, any number of, you know, what, what whichever castle you decide you think would be a good castle is going to set up story beats that you can have at the beginning. It's going to make the final confrontation if indeed you have it at the castle as opposed to the castle being a major, you know, basically a plot turn into the final confrontation, it, the the nature of the castle is going to alter the nature of your story and alter the nature of your Dracula. And so by giving you nine different possible places to put the castle, and as I say, I think two outside uh, Romania, um, you have that many more possible flavors and feels for the end. Uh, the choices that the players face are obviously going to be the more standard ones of since we know the castle is under surveillance, how do we approach it? How do we get in there? The big touristy castle is easier in one hand to approach because you can just buy a ticket, but it's a lot harder to approach because you know that there's going to be a lot of people watching you do it. Whereas if you're up in the Romanian, the Kellerman Alps, you are not necessarily going to have anyone see you approach the castle, which is a terrible idea given that Dracula is commanding all the wolves in the neighborhood. So uh, before we move on to our next segment, 
Was there a particular fun fact or coincidence or something that you turned up in your research that you uh, did not know about various possible castles of Dracula that uh, filled you with Haitian delight? There was nothing but fun coincidences and Haitian delight in these in this kind of research. The Probably the funnest and most delightful was when I was researching the Castle Orava that I mentioned, the one in Slovakia where they filmed uh, Nosferatu. And I just picked it because I knew that that's where they filmed Nosferatu. Murnau was part of a black magic circle in Germany, which means that he has a legitimate possible connection to if the German government had a vampire building team, they would have recruited from these same guys. And so he might have known about it, heard the rumors, and then gone to Orava to film his, his vampire movie. So I looked into the history of Orava, and it's first of all, it turns out it's barely possible that Vlad Tepes was imprisoned there for a bit of time because it was one of Matthias Corvinus's castles, and he's the guy that ordered Vlad imprisoned. A guy named uh, John of Dubovec got it in 1536. He dies without heirs. It's taken over by a guy named Ferenc Thurzo, who dies of, quote-unquote, snake bite in 1576, which means, of course, his body is found somewhere with two puncture marks on it. <laughs> uh, so his son, Georgi, prosecutes Elizabeth Bathory, the, the vampire countess, and then he dies almost immediately after prosecuting her. His son, uh, Georgi's son, Imrik, dies at age 23. His widow dies there five years later. Then there's nothing but peasant revolts, famines, floods, cholera outbreaks. The, the, the castle is basically cursed until, believe it or not, right after 1894, right after the historical point at which Dracula was stopped by uh, the, the Harker team. Uh, there's a, another family takes the castle over, sets up a museum there in, 19, in 1898, and it becomes a national monument. So if you had picked the course of dealing that would be the history of a Dracula's castle, it would pretty much be the history of Castle Orava. And the fact that it all fit there, and the only connection that I had was the film Nosferatu, is exactly the kind of thing that I look, uh, I don't so much look for as expect always to find and indeed do when I'm doing this kind of research. So that was, that was great fun. But there's plenty of, of wonderful little parallelings and tidbits and weirdnesses that popped up, uh, as one might expect when you start looking into Balkan castle history. So, uh, for those of you who uh, want this uh, glorious project, uh, there's a Kickstarter on the way, so uh, keep your eyes open for that, and it's time for us to embark upon another segment. Time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Mark Address asks Ken and Robin, Advanced civilization without fine motor control. Could it happen? And if so, how does it look? I <laughs> I suspect it looks uh, pretty cluttered because they keep knocking things over. Uh, Robin? <laughs> do you? Yes, my, my quick answer would be, no, it's not no. possible. Uh, yeah. But I guess our, our task here as Imagineers is to figure out how it might be. Because, I mean, fi fine motor control goes pretty far down the ladder in the animal kingdom, right? There's uh, uh, birds certainly have it in the way that they can uh, uh, peck through the uh, foil tops of uh, 
milk bottles, and crows can do all sorts of uh, fine manipulations and yeah, figure out how to fires. use tools, and uh, yeah. and that's just with a beak. Mm-hmm. Octopuses famously can open cans underwater, which I can, I don't think I can do that. Yeah, and so the the you know e- even ants have fine motor control. So how do you imagine creatures evolving in a scientific universe without such a core thing that they uh, that they would have. So uh, I sort of have a thought of what that might be, but before we work our way into a realm of uh, magic, Ken, do you have any idea how, how we can explain the existence of just a complex ecology where none of the creatures have fine motor control, let alone civilization, whatever we choose to define that as? Well, I think that you can look... I mean, you... You have to, of course, obviously separate civilization from techniques because once you start talking about built objects, you are pretty much by definition talking about fine motor control, even if it's down to the level of beaver dams or anthills, as you point out. So you have to get away from the notion of civilization relating to civilis, meaning city. Uh, civilization has to now mean a, a complex of, of intellectual or artistic achievement or something else like that. And then you can start thinking, all right, Let's say whales, right? You Whales don't have fine motor control. They're right. big, lumbery things. They've got giant flippers. They smack into stuff. But they have their songs, and they when they whine their songs back and forth in the ocean, and they sing to each other, and you can, even now, you can sort of look, and you can say, this pod of whales has its own song, and this other pod of whales has a slightly different version of that song, and those two songs, when they meet, sometimes they do a little counterpoint to each other, and sometimes they don't. Yes, whales seem to have communication and, and seem to have culture. Right. Culture may be at the same level that birds have culture, but they have certainly, you know, a uh, a decision to cr- uh, create and trade songs back and forth, or an inst- a very, very advanced instinctual behavior. We won't know probably ever. But you could assume a situation in which these whales, or space whales from a different planet or something like that, are able to express complex intellectual, you know, observations and thought experiments in song or in other sorts of uh, chirps and sputterings like dolphins do. And so you can have them, you you, you can say, all right, they set up mathematics, they set up philosophy, they set up all the kinds of of arts and sciences that are purely verbal or purely uh, speculative. And so they may not have anything more amazing than a really remarkable ability to find big fat krill beds and to maintain those in, in a cycle that, that means that the krill bed is always replenished and is never, you know, you're never, you're never out of krill no matter how many whales are wandering around. And so that gives them more time to write whale poetry and come up with whale philosophy and do whale astronomy where they float up to the surface of the, of the planet and they look up and they count stars and they come back down and they're like, Oh no, there was a Nova. What does that mean? And then they all discuss you know, the new star and the, and the comet and, and whatever else and figure out the math of it. And again, you can start, once you get into aliens or, or, or magic whales, you can start postulating other senses where they can, you know, use uh, scrying to, to look at other planets where they uh, have telepathy or something like that. And so they can read the thoughts of people that are flying through their, their star system or they can read the thoughts of uh, people on other planets that also have cetacean uh, populations because they use those cetaceans as transformers or broadcasters. Um, and then so you can start building up that sort of picture. The other way is biotech, where you have all of your technology is not built, but it's grown. And so I don't know what would be the, the thing on land that we would have sloths, maybe, I guess. Um, and then so the sloths are able to 
carry seeds around in their fur, and then the seeds drop down, and they grow the kinds of trees that they want, and then they can grow, you know, big tree lattices to be their cathedrals, and they can plant uh, different kinds of plants that will attract ants that will eat up the, the, the soil underneath and cause uh, the water to rush it away, and that's how they get canals. And you can start sort of imagining just the ability to put plants where you want and specific kinds of plants and breed those plants as being a, a way to substitute for fine motor control because at some level you can go all the way down to a, a moss or an algae and have that do your work for you. And again, you probably have to involve you know incredibly long timescales or some sort of telepathy or magic power to, to make it you know work uh, in a recognizable way. I mean, for example, it's taken us six or seven hundred years to recognize that, you know, the Brazilian rainforest being second growth rainforest is actually sitting on what looks like a fairly big complex of agricultural and uh, ritual uh, architecture. And we just didn't notice it because someone let a jungle grow up in the middle of it. And that someone being, I guess, smallpox. Yeah. So the, uh, took satellite imagery to figure that mm -hmm. out. Another way to do this, and I, I don't know if this counts as cheating or not, uh, is, uh, parasitism. So there are creatures with fine motor control, but they're not the ones who have the civilization that, in fact, they are infested with parasites. And it's the parasites who have the culture and the drive and the desire to start building things and move people forward. Parasites can uh, radically alter the behavior of creatures in quite surprising and horrifying ways. Uh, when you mention ants, there's a whole range of uh, different fungal infections that turn ants into zombies for harvesting more uh, fungus. And in a way, you know, you could look at that as civilization right there, right? That you they mm -hmm. are uh, farming more of themselves and using ants as their physical plant. But you could even imagine them uh, infesting hominid-type creatures. And the consciousness of the hominids is they're just hollowed out their brains are just hollowed out stew full of parasites driving them to do different things. Mm -hmm. And then you could have a host body die off uh, in, in your timeline. And But by that point, the parasites already got the uh, their puppets to build robotics and technologies. And so that you could then have a world where these sort of soup pots full of bacteria are uh, directing the advance of civilization. And again, you know, they check out the stars and they build telescopes and they build spaceships and uh, they're maybe kind of bummed that they no longer have meat puppets to control. So they go to the stars uh, as invaders looking for new hosts on other planets, uh, alien life forms that they can then adapt themselves to and take over as well. And so that you can have a parasitical, uh, microscopic or even like a viral civilization that has by uh, proxy, all of these uh, elements that we associate with the physical plant of civilization, but are incredibly alien to your player characters or your science fiction protagonists when they encounter them. Another possibility, uh, rather than necessarily the parasites that have engineered it, might be something like hermit crabs. That, you know, after we destroy ourselves through whatever, you know, SF null apocalypse it is, We've going to leave a bunch of stuff around, including telescopes and computers and nuclear power plants and God knows what. And so you could postulate uh, something like a hermit crab or an alien blob or something that comes upon this and recognizes the potential of all of this technics that they couldn't have ever built. And they begin to sort of 
move into it and utilize it. And maybe they can't utilize all the little tiny keys on the computers, but they can figure out some other way of, of deriving the data off of it, either through their telepathy or through some other thing, or uh, through eating it and um, uh, it, it transcribing it off of the uh, chips and into their um, uh, DNA or RNA. You could have uh, the, the hermit crabs, you know, going up and, and looking through the telescope and, and uh, you know, doing whatever, and sort of borrowing someone else's advanced civilization by dint of being the lucky successor. And if, you know, technology does in fact uh, guarantee that your society dies, it might be uh, the sort of um, thing that these aliens do. This is it's, it's beginning to sound a lot more like a 1970s novel written, you know, uh, on space drugs. But it's, you know, certainly a, a thing that you can postulate. It's not necessarily an evolutionary path that will lead you to civilization. But if all you want is a civilization that has no motor control at the moment that you're heroes land there, you could easily have a hermit crab civilization that's slowly using up the last bits of the things that were built by the previous civilization. A variant of the opportunistic civilization that now does not have fine motor control is if the previous now dead civilization created um, biomorphic technology, living uh, buildings and machinery and so forth, well, the living machinery has a consciousness and has a thought and then can continue building things and that it itself is the the non-hominid, non-fine motor control as we know it. So it might be just, you know, a series of big structures that have been left behind and you think it's an architectural ruin when your characters go to explore it, but actually... The ruins are not ruins at all. They are the civilization that the they are sentient and they don't move anymore. They don't bother to do all the sorts of fine mechanical things that their uh, predecessor uh, creator race needed done because they're the they're the giant buildings and all, you know all the little robot things with the uh, ability to build little things have died off because they aren't uh, needed anymore. And you find yourself again interacting with something that's uh, extremely alien and perhaps views you as undesirable parasites and wants to get rid of you and then has the uh, challenge of how to go about doing that without uh, being able to uh, physically move, uh, let alone exercise uh, fine motor control. Yeah, I think that there's another thing that I've read, speaking of science fiction, there's the notion that uh, there's natural oceans of superconductor if you go far enough out, you know, in the Oort cloud or Pluto or somewhere, that it gets cold enough that if a superconductive material exists, it will superconduct. And once you have a lot of superconducted signal going around, there's a possibility for pattern to emerge. And rather than have whales necessarily, that it, or even a species, this is more your notion of the haunted construct, except the construct is, is Pluto, or the construct is is, you know, uh, Sedna or one of these other planets out there in the in the Oort cloud. Right. It's it's not just uh, civilization without fine motor control, but civilization without biological life. Right. And the and the and the electrical life, the the superconductor life builds their civilization virtually. Right? And so all they're doing is just, you know, building the holodeck without building the holodeck. So they can go and say, I've built this awesome cathedral. So and and the, all the other superconductor you know, bits or, or programs or whatever, run over and, 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 and look at it, and they rebuild it or tear it apart or do whatever they do. And so you've got a virtual civilization that has emerged on a world where superconductive intelligence evolved. 
uh, from primitive electrical signal. And then they start to build black monoliths. But they're mental black monoliths, and it's not until your starship goes by and their holodeck interacts with your holodeck that uh, trouble ensues. Right. You might need some space drugs in order to be able to uh, interact with them. I think you definitely need space drugs for about half of these things. This is this is all very 1970s. Yeah. Speaking of the speaking of the decor of the gaming god. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Shorter version of this question. Could you simulate taking some space drugs for us for 15 minutes? <laughs> well, if uh, if there is a a team better better suited to t- simulate taking 70s space drugs, well, I've never met it. Yes, all my space drug intake is simulated. <laughs> well, I think we've, uh, before we drift off and become monoliths ourselves, we better uh, come back to uh, Earth in a particularly soggy hole in the ground. The bay of the alien black dogs out on the moor, the pankle of mysteriously precipitating frogs upon the tin roof, tell us that we've once more entered the enigmatic precincts of the Elliptony Hut. And way back in the annals of podcast time, we said that we would get to this topic, and now we are. This is two great elliptonic legends that taste even better together. There's the idea that the Holy Grail could be the mysterious thing that is hidden in the Oak Island money pit. And even listeners who are just joining us this very second probably know everything they uh, need to understand about the Holy Grail to follow us. But Ken, as the resident American, uh, why don't you lay some Canadiana on Oak Island off the coast of Nova Scotia on our listeners? Okay. Oak Island is a little teeny beanie island. It's only about 140 acres. And it's in a bay on sort of the south coast of Nova Scotia. And it has sat there happily, you know, growing oaks in peace until about 1795. A kid sees lights on the island and thinks, aha, pirates. And he goes around and he finds what looks like the remains, a, a hole that, you know, something is filled in. So it's sort of a circular pit like area. And he thinks, well, I'm going to dig into this pit and see what the pirates laid down. They dig down in. And according to a later record, and this is the important thing to keep in mind, they found a layer of flagstones at the bottom of that little pit. And so that means that there was a construct somewhere down in there. And they sort of started to write it up, and maybe they found a, uh, a stone with some symbols on it. And apparently the symbols may or may not have been translated to say 40 feet below 2 million pounds lie buried. And that's the sort of thing that gets everyone... Very excited. Not just a treasure, but a treasure with a, do- with a dollar figure. Exactly. It's, it's very handy when you're trying to get venture capital. The pit flooded out because it's a pit below the waterline in no- Nova Scotia, as one might have figured out. And that began a series of maniacally crazy excavations. And every so often someone would say, there's treasure here. If we can all pool our money, we can dig out more pit. And of course, they're digging out this pit beginning with 19th century technology, which is a terrible idea for archaeological preservation, even if there are any flagstones there to uh, preserve. Yes, this was less about archaeological preservation as it was finding that treasure. Right. And so they built a giant drill and drilled it down to the bottom of the pit. And according, again, to their later story, it passed through a platform of spruce. It went through some open space. It went through metal. It went through oak 
more metal, more oak, more spruce, and then into clay. So, again, this is what a bunch of amateurs building a giant drill in Nova Scotia say happened. And I cannot stress this enough. There is no sign of any actual professional engineer or professional driller. This is before oil wells, so it's before drilling technology has really taken off. Their, their waterlogged spruce detection <laughs> technology has been lost to the sands it's of time. It's been lost to us. It was probably built by whales, and therefore we can't understand it. And so they dug it out and managed, of course, to collapse the shaft a million times, uh, kill a bunch of people, and lose all their money and flood the pit back out. And this happened again let's see, like like six or seven more times that they would come out and they would drill into it and they would try and um, uh, excavate it. At one point, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was part of a, a consortium that uh, was attempting to uh, drill in and, and find this pirate treasure. And so by now, even if there had been pirate treasure, even if Captain Kidd had personally buried the Holy Grail and Christopher Marlowe's Love's Labors One and the body of Jesus it would be gone now because it would have been blown to pieces by all this terrible, terrible excavation. <laughs> and uh, I think most recently... Well, that, that is a bummer answer to the mystery of the Holy Grail, which is wherever it was, some <laughs> Franklin Nimrod Delano wrecked, wrecked it, it trying to dig it out. <laughs> the answer to so many things. But, but apparently some bunch of idiots are, are still trying to dig there, I guess by now, just because it's a thing you do. Have you ever been to Oak Island? Have you been in that part of... Your great Canadian motherland? I have not been lucky enough to be in Nova Scotia at all, actually. Oh, uh, that's a shame. I understand it's it's an even newer Scotland. I've uh, Aside from the aforementioned Newfoundland, which of course mm -hmm. was very recent, I have uh, not been to the maritime provinces the way I've been to the other ones. That's a shocker. Anyhow, so that is the story of Oak Island. It, it, there's... And with anything that's happened, that, that humans have been touching for the better part of two centuries, there are lots and lots of weird happenings. There's, Like I said, there's been some deaths involved. Any one of those could be a mysterious death. There's been the, the, the magic stone got lost, so that could have been stolen. Uh, obviously, if there were, in fact, layers of spruce and metal uh, 90 feet below, that means that someone went to an awful lot of trouble to build a fairly technologically advanced chamber at the bottom of this uh, pit, which one assumes at that time was an actual um, uh, geological sinkhole or maybe a shaft that went down and someone sank a cask that was lined with spruce and, and metal to keep the Holy Grail or whatever was in it, you know, um, waterproofed and happy. Right. And we know that basically that, or anyway, so far as we know, there's no precedent for there being other pirate pits of, of this sort. No, no. The pirates pretty much just dug shallow holes and then got drunk. Right. And, uh, you know, the number of pirates who buried treasure versus the number of pirates who went and spent their treasure immediately upon receipt, uh, we can all picture which way the pie chart goes on that. Yeah, um, right. Yeah. So anyway, based on what you've said, it makes absolute sense that the Holy Grail would be in there. And I think yes. it sort of goes without saying. But just, you know, to remain on the uh, up and up in terms of uh, providing information to our uh, listeners, why does the obvious reason why someone later would decide that it was the Holy Grail in there? Well, I, I, I want to sort of go back to how I found this story. Because this story, it, it, it's got Canadian content, this story. I was in... Uh, Canada uh, on vacation, and uh, my friend Mike and I stopped in at McGill University, the great uh, Canadian institution of learning, and we went to their bookshop, and Mike, uh, who is a trained librarian, by the way, was shelf-reading ahead of me, and I was going behind him on the shelves of Ca Canadiana or whatever it was, and I found a book by Michael Bradley called Holy Grail Across the Atlantic. 
And Mike swears to this day that book did not exist <laughs> until I came along and summoned it into existence. He's a professional librarian, not a magic librarian. Not a magical librarian, and that's the difference, children. Always pay for the magic. And and I, re- I we spent the rest of our trip to Canada reading glorious, increasingly glorious, and increasingly insane excerpts from Holy Grail across the Atlantic. And so... I don't care who else's theory it is. To me, it always belongs to the lovely and talented (laughs) and bananas uh, Michael Bradley. And his theory is that, A, oaks are not native to Canada, so they must have been brought there from Britain. And they were planted there to mark the spot by the Sinclair family of Scotland. Now, now is that part actually true, or is that bananas? I have no idea of where oaks are native. I'll bet that there are Native American oaks and that he's bananas, but it hardly matters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's just level one, but, you you know, sometimes you get caught up on a technicality. Yeah, no, I'm I'm perfectly willing. You know, frankly, I will grant. I will, right now, I will say... Sure, oaks are not native to Nova Scotia. These have to have been planted by someone else. But the point is, by the time it gets, you know, to be Oak Island money pit, people have been coming to Nova Scotia for 300 years. Plenty of time for someone to bring some damn acorns in their pocket. Anyhow, um, although he has, oh, the, the, it's such a glorious book. I, I totes recommend buying it. It's got lots of lovingly enlarged maps from the 17th century pointing that, look, this map didn't show the money pit. This map doesn't show the island. It must be a cover-up, that kind of thing. Now, is, is this in print, or do people have to wait for it to magically materialize? I, I, I suppose it may still be in print. I mean, it's got to be his bestseller because, oh my goodness, what a lovely book. I got my copy, so it's in print in my house. So anyway, the, the Sinclair family brings the oaks across and plants them there. They are the guys who built Rosslyn... Uh, chapel in Scotland, which we all know is full of Templar imagery and all manner of other things, and also may or may not show maize and sunflowers on the wall, and if the chapel's, all of the chapel's interior art dates from 1440, then it's interesting to explain why it has American plants on its wall. The alert consumer can figure out where the uh, logical slip is in that statement. But anyway, the Sinclairs go across the Atlantic, and because the Sinclairs are all tied up in the Templars, that's where they're hiding the Templar treasure, and in the Templar treasure is the Holy Grail, because the Templars dug it up in Palestine when they were there in Solomon's Temple, and they found the Holy Grail, they put it into their uh, magic box, and they carried it across the sea to France, and then when the French uh, got shirty, they went up to Scotland, where they joined up with Robert the Bruce to beat back the hated English, and then they put the Holy Grail with the Sinclair family and said, now don't lose this, we'll be right back. And the Sinclair family, of course, promptly carried it across the Atlantic, put it in the Oak Island money pit, and then let a bunch of rubes drill it to pieces over the next 200 years. (laughs) So the Templar conspiracy apparently went to hell right around 1795. Well, but surely in this this version, the Grail is still down there in another layer of this uh, extraordinarily engineered pit that uh, was just finally waiting to be uh, uh, penetrated in any moment. Right, yeah, the, the, the spruce and metal must have been their, their secondary um, uh, uh, vault that they put uh, nothing more important than the true Baphomet and the skeleton of uh, Joseph of Arimathea or something. It, it's, it's your baseline decoy metal spruce box. Everybody That's right, knows yeah. that trick. Yeah, you always bury two. That's the Templar way. Yeah. And, so the, uh, and, and so the Grail would be hidden in this version either in a different shaft on Oak Island and just a little more digging in tomography will find it, or Oak Island 
is sort of the first stop in the Dan Brownian treasure hunt, and somewhere in all of this ruck is the map that will lead you to where else in Nova Scotia they would have buried it, because the theory being that uh, the Sinclair scion who cried, I think it was Henry Sinclair, uh, went to Nova Scotia and was known as Glooscap to the Abenaki Indians, and he taught them how to use fishing nets, because the Abenaki Indians, of course, had been sitting here on the edge of the North Atlantic looking at the fish and going, gosh, if there was only some way a white guy could come teach us how to get these fish, we wouldn't be starving. Oh, look, it's a guy with a holy grail. He must have our best interests yeah. at heart. Let's let's name him Glooscap. Glooscap, that sounds like Henry for Sinclair. For his belief that he taught us how to use nets. Yeah. No, there's just... Like, there's no bottom to this well. I've only, I've only, be, much like Oak Island, you can keep drilling down into Michael Bradley's book and keep hitting spruce and metal. <laughs> it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. I, I, I love it fit to bust. Um, he's really kind of a disturbing, crazy person. He talks about how uh, the white race is all Neanderthals. I think in a bad way, though. I think he's, he's angry at us, not happy at us for being Neanderthals. But he's got a lot of weird theories. Anyway, the uh, Holy Grail is obviously shunted off into a different pit. And the, uh, Henry Sinclair, you know, set up a, a whole Templar refuge there in North America. And maybe it's at Norumbega, which is the lost city that was seen by early explorers in the uh, early 16th century. And then when they sailed by the alleged site of Norumbega, it's like, there's nothing here but Indians. Obviously, there can't have been a city here. And thus was Norumbega lost to history by racists. But if Norumbega was actually the Norman Berg or the Norman castle that was built by Henry Sinclair, maybe Oak Island uh, can, can point you the way to Norumbega, which is Actually, Norumbega is so cool it should go in a, in a different hut, maybe. But anyway, um, that is sort of the pressy, I guess. Not so much a pressy as a meandering, delighted summary of the, the theory of the Holy Grail. Right. So if you want a uh, triggering event for your magic comes back near contemporary world, you can have them dig back down and, and penetrate the chamber that leads you to the other chamber that isn't waterlogged and has the, the grail safely there and uh, the... Uh, consortium of uh, Roosevelt uh, descendants who uh, brings it up, does so, and then uh, magic returns to the world. Uh, how else can we uh, uh, really quickly uh, fold this into various genres of gaming? Well, I mean, you can have uh, just a, a sort of, it can just hold standard old treasure. I mean, there's one theory that the French, uh, when they saw that Louisbourg was going to fall to the heroic Americans and hated British, they took all the treasure out of their fort and they took it and they dug a very complex and French multi-layered set of chambers into Oak Island and hid their treasure there. So you could just find, you know, whole bags and bags and bags of bullion and maybe uh, documents that prove this, that, or the other thing about the 18th century. Uh, Marie Antoinette's jewels might be down there. You could find Shakespeare's Lost Place. Basically, anything you want in your game, up to it, including, I think, a UFO engine, could probably be down in the Oak Island money pit. I mean, the, what the great thing about things like the money pit are is that they give you a universal joint in which to screw any sort of nonsense that you want to put into your game, whether it be magic or psionics. It could have ant ghosts, like in Quatermass and the, and the non-Oak Island money pit. Uh, there, if there's you all admit cynicism into your F20 fantasy worlds, you could have a group who create this hoax treasure shaft that um, others have tried to uh, penetrate, and they've uh, spread rumors about it, and that your probably reasonably low-level adventurers uh, have to hack their way through the dangerous wilderness to get there, only to discover that the whole purpose of these things is to waylay people and steal their actually pretty valuable weapons and armor for resale. And then your uh, 
the rest of the adventure is your just vengeance as you uh, confront these bandits who have left this decoy money pit out for you. Another possibility, um, and by possibility I don't mean possibility at all, but another possibility <laughs> is that the story of the Oak Island money pit is itself a Freemasonic challenge, and that the Freemasons made up the money pit as a parable, and that all of the people who are supposedly central to the story of the money pit turn out to be Freemasons, and so the story of the money pit is a code that hides a deeper truth, and that the money pit doesn't hide anything. The money pit is just for ignorant Nova Scotians to dig in, and FDR, but the actual story of it, and the Masons put money in just to keep the story going, is a transmitted narrative code, and by solving the code, the layers of spruce and metal don't mean layers of spruce and metal, they mean obstacles, and so the Oak Island Money Pit becomes the map itself. The story becomes the map, as opposed to there being a, a, a proper pirate parchment map with an X and a, and, a, and a dragon on it. And in a secret magical history of the 20th century campaign, the Money Pit can have been uh, trapped in a different way. It could be to get a cursed uh, replica of the Holy Grail into FDR's hands and then wreak all sorts of havoc. And yeah. your job as the uh, doughty pre-war or wartime investigators is to get the cursed item away from him and uh, destroy it so that uh, the tide of the war can turn and then find out uh, who did that and uh, put paid to them. Yeah, in the sort of make manifest that which is hidden if the Freemasons did that as a way to lure people to get their evil treasure when they dig up the treasure that proves that, you know, Jesus never existed or that Shakespeare was Francis Bacon or whatever the thing is, that that's a forgery that the Freemasons have put there for their own uh, selfish purposes going forward in your campaign. And so if you begin in the world where this has happened, discovering that it's a forgery is, is sort of maybe the activity that the players have. Right, and it's Canada, so it proves that Shakespeare's plays are written by uh, Francis P. Meal Bacon. By Francis P. Meal Bacon, or as we called him, uh, Francis Canadian Bacon in America. Uh, yeah, the euphony just isn't there. Well, I think uh, we've uh, supplied all sorts of uh, ways to work that craziness into your game, as is our final segment, Want. So we can therefore uh, declare this recording done and get back to our packing for Gen Con. Back to Gen Con, which is by now a, another success by the time you listen to this. Right. And so if you're wondering uh, why the Gen Con recap episode has not dropped, that's because in our time continuum, we are just about to go to Gen Con, but that'll be the next episode coming up. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Stone Skin Press. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep us overcoming podcasting obstacles by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or Masonic Money Pit by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robert D. Laws. See you next time, when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>